continuing our series in discipleship this summer, and I have a question for you. Is there a connection between rewards and discipleship? Now, let's start by listening to Solomon, what he says in Ecclesiastes 7. He says, for you are going to die, and it's a good thing to think about it while there is still time. Yes, a wise man thinks much of death, while the fool thinks only of having a good time now. So you can see it's going to be an uplifting time this morning, right? <laughs> but this is a serious thing. These are words of wisdom here. Matthew Henry said, it ought to be the business of every day to prepare for our last day. Now, the reason for that, of course, is that our life on earth is brief. Uh, when this life is over, then what? You know, Randy Alcorn illustrates our situation this way. Our life on earth is, is like a dot, he says, in comparison with this, this endless line of eternity. And yet we, we so often live as though our whole existence is limited to this dot. Now that doesn't make any sense because God's word reveals that we need to live our lives with eternity in view because that's where the vast majority of our time and our activity will take place. Now, that's not to say that we're not to enjoy our lives here on earth, but it is to say that we had better be able to make the connection between today on earth and tomorrow in eternity. Now, scripture tells us, God's word tells us that our beliefs and our actions now have a direct they have an irreversible bearing on our life in eternity. And so that being the case, we can see why it's a good thing to remind ourselves of the brevity of this portion of our existence, lest we become too attached to those things which are passing away. And we need to make sure that we're not consumed, in other words, by misguided priorities. Now is the time to make sure we know what we believe, why we believe it, and how our beliefs impact our daily practices in life. So let's start with this open acknowledgement. Let's get it right up front. The fundamental aspect of your future, of everybody's future, is the inevitability of our death. In, in fact, you know, really the only thing you have to do is die. I know they say you gotta pay taxes. You don't have to pay taxes. You can go to jail, but you will die, all right? <laughs> and, and yet people have come up with a, a lot of creative ways to mask that reality uh, and, and really to avoid the thinking about it at all. In fact, a lot of people only have a very fuzzy understanding of what death really is. But see, God's word makes it very clear that the basic idea of death is separation. Separation of what was never intended to be separated. And we can find an account of how death entered the world and the human race in the first three chapters of Genesis. And so throughout Scripture, a person's death is described in, in one or more of three ways. There's physical death. That's the separation of the body from the immaterial part of us. All right? It's a departure from this brief life on earth. Physical death is a common experience of all mankind. And of course, the only exceptions being Enoch and Elijah and the believers who will be living at Christ's return. Spiritual death is a reality as well. That's the condition of the unbeliever today whereby because of sin, due to their sin, they're separated from God. And, and spiritual death is the experience of all mankind apart from Christ. And then there's eternal death. Eternal death is called the second death in Revelation. It confirms the destiny of the person who's separated from God in that state of separation forever. Forever. 
Well, since death looms as this major problem facing humanity, Scripture also addresses the, the remedy to death. And we find those remedies, for example, physical death, what's the remedy for that? Well, it'll be resurrection, new bodies. The remedy for spiritual death is that gift of eternal life from God through faith in Christ. And of course, for eternal death, there is no remedy. <laughs> there is no remedy. So, so still following the line, uh, the story, if you will, of our future, what happens to a person immediately upon physical death? What happens when we move from the dot of the present into the eternity the eternal line, if you will, of tomorrow. Well, at physical death, God's word tells us that the immaterial part of a person continues conscious existence. And those who are in Christ will be immediately ushered into his presence. Those outside of Christ will experience the second death, that eternal separation from God. And, and, and there is no scriptural support for ideas such as purgatory or second chances after we're gone from this world to, to accept Christ after we physically die. No such thing as soul sleep or that we're annihilated, that is that we're unconscious once we physically die. Scripture doesn't support any of those notions. So for those in Christ who have placed their faith, their trust in Christ for salvation... Let's now connect the dot. Connect the dot to eternity that's ahead of us. And, and, and though we're presently in the dot, we should be living with eternity in view, in mind, at all times. You know, New Testament emphasizes the importance of living in a way that focuses on eternity constantly. Indeed, in view of who Christ is, in view of who we are in him, and, and, and what that means in eternity, let's connect the dot to eternity that's ahead of us. And the Apostle Paul says, should always be doing that, and that's why he says, set your mind on the things above. Don't focus all your attention on the things that are on earth. Now, now, last week we saw where Paul issued a challenge to his young friend, his young disciple, Timothy, and, and hence it's a challenge to us as well that we should always have that mindset that we remain steadfast in our Christian walk. But then he goes on immediately to connect the importance of that steadfastness in the dot to the Christian's life in eternity using his own life as an example. And so <clears throat> verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4, he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, remember, Paul's physical death is imminent as he writes these words. He's waiting to be executed because the charge against him was his own steadfastness in serving the Lord. And that happened after he met the risen Christ about three decades earlier to this particular time in his life. It's not, again, that Paul had been perfect. It's wrong to think he was perfect or that he didn't make his share of mistakes. But overall, overall, he had been consistent. He had been faithful in living out his life for Christ. And, and hopefully, at the end of our lives, when that last day of our lives come, when that we leave the dot. Hopefully we'll be able to say something very similar to what the Apostle Paul says. Because Paul, you see, is he's not bragging here about a great, what a great man he was. The reason he's writing about faithfulness and, and steadfastness and consistency, consistency in, in the Christian walk, in his Christian life, is to encourage Timothy. And, and, and by extension, to encourage you and to encourage me to do the very same thing. After all, 
If God's grace can achieve this kind of life in the heart of Paul, who calls himself the chief of sinners, then it can happen to Timothy. And it can happen to you and to me as well. Now, when you read Paul's letter in the original Greek language, it's very easy to see that he doesn't emphasize the personal pronoun I in this particular passage. Paul's not saying it's about me, 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 and what I've done. No, he's emphasizing the fight. He's emphasizing the course. And he's emphasizing the faith associated with that. So, now, Paul loved to use these athletic contests as an analogy for living the Christian life. And he says, I have fought the good fight, drawing on that popular boxing and, and wrestling matches that, that went on in, in the day. I finished the course, I finished the race. Another reference to this wildly popular races that were staged throughout Greece and throughout Rome. And he says, I've kept the faith, meaning that he had safely preserved the integrity of the gospel. Uh, he didn't distort it. Uh, he didn't corrupt it. He was faithful in replicating it and passing it on to others. And, and so when Paul connects all these activities in which he was engaged while in the dot to the line of eternity where he will spend Christ is evident by his following statement here in verse 8. He says, For in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but all, to all who have loved his appearing. So his steadfastness, his faithness, faithfulness in the Christian life results in Christ, his Lord, the righteous judge, awarding Paul and other believers the crown of righteousness, he says. Now, for Paul, the expectation of receiving rewards from the Lord was a big deal. And it should be the same. It should be a big deal for you and me. And I said, throughout the summer, we've been looking at discipleship from various angles. And so this morning, as we continue to focus on discipleship, now in particular, we want to see how discipleship connects to this whole issue of eternal rewards. So the initial question I asked was, is there a connection between discipleship and rewards? Well, what do you think? I mean, you already know the answer to that question. It's like asking, does a cat have whiskers? What, what is our calling as men and women in Christ? Well, we know the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and what? Make disciples. Well, then when Paul speaks of his faithfulness in keeping the faith in fighting the good fight, in running the race, and all that entails, you can really link all of them to some aspect of Christ's command to make disciples. Rewards, in fact, are linked to all aspects of our life in Christ. So it shouldn't surprise us to find that our faithfulness with respect to making disciples is specifically mentioned in connection with rewards. You know, this, this whole subject of rewards is, is a lot more than we can get into this morning. But it's a very important subject that every Christian should understand because the rewards Paul is talking about have a direct bearing on your life in eternity, on my life in eternity. And, and yet, uh, I, I, would, I would venture to say most Christians are a little fuzzy about rewards in their thinking? Eh, I'm not sure what all that's about. Uh, they tend to minimize them, perhaps push them to the side in terms of their importance in our lives today and in the future. And so sadly, I think a lot of Christians, to their detriment, dismiss them entirely. So this morning... Our task is to focus on discipleship and rewards, but there are, there's some basic facts you need to keep in mind as we do that. What does the author of Hebrews say? Well, he says it's appointed for men to die once, and after that, what? Judgment. Then comes judgment. Now, again, we've already talked about the fact that Scripture teaches every person's eternal destination 
is determined by a judgment of faith, right? In other words, where a person spends eternity is determined by what a person believed on earth regarding the person of Christ. You know, in all his teaching, Jesus identified only two possible locations in which people will spend eternity. Heaven or hell. Those are the two options. Good works, a general belief in God or even in Jesus, attending a certain church, being a moral person in your own eyes. See, none of those things are going to lead a person into heaven. Instead, a person must recognize the fact that, that he or she is, is separated from God and, and they're what? They're spiritually dead due to personal sin and, and therefore they are desperately in need of a savior. And so then you have to acknowledge Christ is that needed savior. Understanding that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, that he paid the penalty for our sin and, and, and enables us through our faith in him to be reconciled to God the Father in eternity and now. So each one of us must believe, must trust him for salvation, must receive him by personal invitation. And because it's that personal relationship with Jesus and that relationship with him now or, or the lack of it in the dot that determines our eternal destination. Furthermore, whatever a person's final destination is, Scripture tells us that every person will receive a resurrection body in eternity. Now, these new bodies are going to be immoral. They're not going to wear out again. They're not going to be falling apart. And that is good news to me. You know, am I the only one who walks by a mirror and does a double take? You know, I don't look like the person who's living in here. That's my take on that. I don't know. So, so both those going to heaven and, and those going to hell will be given a resurrection body. Though these resurrections that they're involved in do not occur at the same time. But following the resurrections, both believers and non-believers will undergo a judgment of works while appearing before Christ in the resurrection bodies. But these judgments are vastly different in nature and, and they take part in two different events, two different occasions. Remember, a person's eternal destination has already been determined at this point by whether they have placed their faith in Christ, their belief in Christ as Savior. So, so these judgments have nothing to do with where we're going, but they have everything to do with how a person will spend eternity. A little, little chart for you here. Oh, there it is. You got about two seconds to write that down. <laughs> no, no, I can get you a copy of that if you want. The, the point being, I want you to see number one and number seven uh, primarily because those are the two judgments I'm talking about. Um, those who have rejected Christ, those people who are in hell, will appear at what Scripture calls the great white throne judgment, which comes about at the conclusion of that thousand-year reign of Christ during his millennial kingdom. And people will be judged and sentenced in connection with their evil works while, they're living, while, while they were living here on earth. And, and, and the reason for the great white throne judgment is because God's justice demands that everyone receives exactly what he deserves. So all who appear before the great white throne are going to be cast into the lake of fire, but there will be degrees of eternal punishment that will be assessed. And apparently the criterion for that involves uh, the amount of truth they knew, the kinds of sins they committed, uh, the number of sins they committed. But believers in our age, the church age, those who have placed their faith, their trust in Christ, we're in no danger of experiencing God's wrath or his condemnation. And, and we're going to live with, in heaven with Christ forever. However, the Lord will judge the believer's life with respect to 
his calling in Christ or her calling in Christ at the, what's called the Bema Seat Judgment. And Paul spells that out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Now, in this passage, Paul has already assured, already assured the believers that their secure eternal destiny that awaits them in Christ. And then he says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or at home, that is being in the body, or absent of the body in heaven, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, the word he uses here is bima. It's translated judgment seat in, in most translations. Uh, the bima in Corinth was a large... Uh, very elaborately decorated raised platform and it was centrally located in the marketplace. And there's little doubt that that's what Paul had in mind when he used that term to put that picture in his readers' minds. It was the place where rewards were given out for, for victory in the Isthmian Games. And, and, and those rewards were, could be a garland, it could be a wreath, it could be a trophy, it could be a crown. Could be social benefits such as exception, exemption, exemption from the income tax. Now sign me up for that. How many of you would run a marathon to be exempt from the income tax? It reminds me of that bumper sticker I used to see quite a bit. It said, stop organized crime, abolish the IRS. Um, but punishments were also administered at the BEMA. Now, uh, Christ's judgment, uh, any negative judgment, we're not going to spend time going into that now, but it consists of what Paul says is loss of rewards. Loss of rewards, and he explains that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And you know, here's the deal. You hear a lot of sermons preached on the judgments which fall on the non-believer, but we don't, let's not forget that the New Testament everywhere emphasizes that the believer faces a final accountability in terms of our outliving our life in Christ. And uh, so, you know, throughout the New Testament, we find a lot of things that the rewards are given for, things like doing good works in the name of Christ, not to get to heaven, but as an outworking of our walk with Christ, self-denial, compassion toward others, uh, treating those who hate us with kindness, giving generously, enduring difficult circumstances in life while trusting him through them, um, serving him with, with proper motives, persevering under persecution, Demonstrating a life of godliness in, in the disciplines that are involved in doing that. And, and rewards given for evangelism and discipleship. The efforts that go into those. You know, eternal rewards are described as treasures. Sometimes it's couched in the verbal praise from the Lord. Sometimes they're called crowns. Crowns were given, they were awarded for specific acts, and the New Testament identifies four of them. Of course, there is nothing on this list of five that means that's an exhaustive list. I mean, there could be innumerable crowns and types of crowns, along with other rewards, not called crowns, but nevertheless rewards. Now, before I put that list up there, look, the thing to remember is when we're talking about rewards, all rewards are graciously given by the Lord Jesus in response to faithful efforts of believers in, in the context of their walk with him, uh, who himself, the believer himself, is empowered by God's grace. So it's not like we're out there in the flesh doing it. We're empowered by God's grace. And certainly the Lord is not obligated to give rewards. None uh, whatsoever. But they all flow out of Christ's magnificent grace, his generosity, his love for his people. 
eternal rewards are grace-based. And so this morning, realizing that, take a brief look at the crowns because that's where we find the specific connection between discipleship and eternal rewards. Um, the first one is called the crown of life. James in Revelation talks about that. It's given for faithfulness to Christ. During times of persecution, even times where lives are taken, people lose their lives because of that. And throughout the centuries, how many Christians have been called upon to give their lives for the sake of Christ, including the very apostles themselves, including Paul, waiting to be beheaded? The Lord has chosen to reward such faithfulness in a special way. There's also what's called the incorruptible, incorruptible crown, or the crown of mastery, as sometimes it's called. Again, it just involves those disciplines, as Paul points out, in comparing our lives to a race, one of the races in, 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 I mean, in 1 Corinthians 9, and, and those things that are involved in, 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 in maintaining a, a, a respectful and God-honoring Christian life. Now, in, in Corinthians, where he speaks of the race, he uses a term which refers to these competitions again at the Ismanian Games, which were held every three years. Uh, they were given in honor of Poseidon, the god of the sea, and there were huge crowds attending these games. Paul's readers were completely familiar with what went on here. At the Colosseum of Rome, for example, the games there hosted 50,000 people. And there were other Colosseums uh, around that held up to 80,000 people. I mean, and that's a modern football game. <laughs> and, and he had something like 270 of these amphitheaters known in, in Rome. So the prize, the prize of that race that was a garland, a wreath, a crown, if you will. Paul makes that comparison. That will be given to believers for their faithfulness in living a Christian life that, that glorifies him and many of the disciplines associated with that. There's also the crown of righteousness, uh, given for joyfully purifying and ridding one's sense, uh, self to, to meet Christ's return. Paul just talked about that in 2 Timothy. For those Christians who long for Christ's return, and they anticipate that, and they live their lives in anticipation of the Lord's return, there will be a special honor given at that Bema seat for them. And now, you know, in particular, note for this morning, uh, two of these crowns that are listed involve various aspects of discipleship. The first one is the crown of glory. Now, that's given for those who faithfully represent Christ in a position of spiritual leadership. Um, in other words, Christ is going to bestow special honor special recognition, if you will, on those who have labored faithfully to care for other Christians, to disciple other Christians. And so it reflects the Lord's pleasure with those who carry out their, their leadership responsibilities faithfully with, with proper motives and, and, and accompanying attributes and the spiritual welfare of those believers in their assembly. There's also a crown of rejoicing, specifically pointing to the pouring of oneself into the lives of others for evangelism purposes, for discipleship purposes. And apparently this crown is associated closely with the people who have been impacted in some way by us, uh, whether that is our part in the initial uh, salvation of them coming to the Lord, whether he used us in that event, or, or the nurturing them along the way at some point in their faith. Christ will in some way give special honor to those who have faithfully labored at bringing people to the Lord, and, and, and special honor for those who are growing them in the Lord. Paul speaks of this reward primarily in two passages that are listed there for you, involving the people in whom he had invested his life, either leading them to faith in Christ or teaching them, discipling them 
in their spiritual growth as a believer. And of course, in many cases, he did both of those churches. 1 Thessalonians 2, I'm picking that up in verse 17, says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, not in spirit, well, we've endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. And then he says this, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And in Philippians 4.1, he's alluding probably to that very same crown when he indicates to the Philippian believers who are his converts, uh, speaks of this crown, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. And this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So, so what Paul is doing here, he's looking forward to the time, to that day, when his life journey would be over, on this dot. And he would be in the presence of the Lord, along with other Christians, on whose behalf he had labored, on whose behalf he had prayed for, on whose behalf he had worked to ensure their spiritual well-being. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 2, that, that section there, he's picturing the rapture of the church when Christ will come for his own to take them home to glory, following which they will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And for Paul personally, of course, there's a wonderful thing for him that he's going to be in heaven with the Lord. But standing at the bema seat where crowns are awarded these Thessalonians are going to be there with him. And they would bring him great joy and they would be his crown. Before the Lord would be pleased. These are the people that you might consider his spiritual children in a sense. People that Paul led to the Lord. People that Paul had taught, had discipled. Well, they're going to bring him great joy. So when you think about your relationships with other people, don't become discouraged, whether that's evangelistic efforts, whether it's discipleship efforts with someone you know and growing them in Christ. Evangelism and discipleship are not easy. Neither one of them is easy for any believer. You know, you, you look at the church at Thessalonica, and that was a very healthy church. Paul praises it extensively in his letters. But it's like the Philippian church. Uh, some commentaries think, or commentators believe that, that that was his favorite church of all. But again, that doesn't mean that it was always easy for Paul to work among those believers. Uh, you, you get a great flavor and better understanding for the heart behind Paul's ministry when you look at the first um, 12 verses of chapter 2 of Thessalonians where he says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated by the <clears throat> powers that be in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from the error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God. Who examines our hearts? For we never came with flattering speech, as, as you know, nor, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from other men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, that we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having then a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. 
because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are a witness, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would with his own children so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Show you Paul's heart, the heart of a discipler, the heart of someone who invests his lives or his life into the lives of other people. Uh, the, the bottom line is that our ministry in Christ's name is relational. It involves investing our lives into the lives of other people through the hard times and through the good times. And doing that with eternity in mind. See, only people span the transition from the dot to the eternal line. Whatever else we invest in is going to simply decay. Or it's going to be left behind when we physically die. So, so your real legacy, my real legacy, will be found in the relationships that we have with other people when we leave this dot. That's the real legacy. To care enough, to love enough, to share Christ with someone, to love those who are already his, to build them up in the faith. Those efforts will result in special consideration, the Lord says, at the judgment seat of Christ. Exercising our gifts for the, for the benefit or, or the building up, if you will, the body of Christ, the church, merits eternal reward. We're not all the same, nor do we all have the same gifts, nor the same opportunities. So our investment in the lives of others is going to vary in accordance, in accordance with those gifts and those opportunities. Some of us will be sowers, some of us will be water, some of us will reap. And yet, as Paul says to the Corinthians, each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, his own involvement in the lives of other people. You don't have to worry about other people. Just worry about yourself. <laughs> you see. The key for us to, to, is to be looking for and to be acting upon those opportunities when they become available. And hopefully, in that day at the Bema, we'll be able to see a friend or a child, perhaps even a stranger whom receives spiritual help from us through our gospel testimony, through our discipleship. And so that we can say with Paul, you, indeed, are my glory and my joy. You know, God loves to use those who are willing to be used in the making of disciples from start to finish. Uh, and, and you're going to be surprised at the judgment seat of Christ at how your consistency, how your faithfulness in that process of impacting others has been. Remember, you are not the Holy Spirit. And, and you're not responsible for the actions of others. You're just responsible for and rewarded for your faithfulness in the process. See, all of us can do something, can't we? We can all pass out tracts, books. We, can, we might cons not consider ourselves evangelists, testimony here, uh, we can pray for others. We can come alongside others to help them through trials, to help them grow in Christ. It's their calling. And, and, and you know, we've heard all summer from the other pastors uh, talking about discipleship. There are so many ways in which you can become involved in discipleship. I mean, from our friendships to our parenting, to our family life, 
to our involvement in the local church body. So many ways. Now again, is it always easy? Of course not. And, and sometimes there are great disappointments. And sometimes there's heartache associated with our sincere efforts to disciple or, or to invest our lives in others. But Paul had his share, but he persevered, knowing that the work that he put in, the sacrifice he gave, the hardships he went through, even the danger he was exposed to repeatedly, all that was, was worth it all. It was worth it because Paul was living for the line, not the dot. Your faithfulness is going to be rewarded by the Lord himself, even if you don't see the desired results of your efforts here on earth. Remember, you know, <clears throat> you're not living for the dot, you're living for the line. Two minutes after you die, you're gonna understand that heaven is your home and that earth was just a temporary lodging on your homeward journey. Two minutes after you die, you're going to know for certain what was important and what was not important. You and I will see with the clarity of eternity in the Lord's presence. We will know exactly how we should have lived. But you know what? You and I don't have to wait until we die to know how we should live. God has given us his word to tell us how to live and his indwelling spirit to empower us to live as we should. We can either take off the blinders now while we still have our earthly lives to live or we can wait to have them be taken off after death. When? It will be too late to go back and change what we've done on earth. See, why not make those things which were important to us after we die important to us now? The call to make disciples is of the utmost importance Importance in our Christian walk. Are we engaged in that process somehow, some way? Are we investing our lives in, in people? Investing in others as we grow in the Lord ourselves and we put forth the effort or discipline, uh, uh, perseverance that we need. We do that is going to translate into eternal rewards. Rewards which we should truly desire to receive, by the way. Uh, you know, I, I know there are people who think, well, eternal rewards, it's all about me, if I, if I think about rewards. And, and so they say, well, I don't really care about rewards in heaven. Well, according to scripture, you do want rewards <laughs> at the Bema seat because two minutes after you die, you're going to see their great value and you're going to see their great impact upon your existence in eternity. The beam of judgment, for instance, is going to determine the capacity of how you serve and glorify and worship the Lord in the future. Believers will reign with Christ over the world, even over angels, we're told. So in his coming kingdom, Christ spoke about granting some followers rulership over, over ten cities and some five and, and some none, all in proportion to their faithful service. So it's clear that although believers will all be with Christ, not all will reign with him, at least not with equal responsibility, with equal authority. Now, the question is this. Who among us does not want to maximize our service to the Lord, our worship toward the Lord? If false humility would say, I don't want any rewards, after all, they're all tossed down at Christ's feet, aren't they, in Revelation 4? And then people say that, the implication is, of course, the rewards are really a non-factor. It's all about me. And so, yeah, I'll leave that aside. 
no big deal. But here's the deal. That very passage in Revelation 4 reveals that a major purpose of crowns, of rewards, if you will, are as tokens of worship. The rewarded believer is pictured as worshiping God by laying at his feet the very honors that the Lord gave him. And that process is not just a one-time event. It's ongoing throughout eternity. In other words, your crowns will enhance your capacity to worship and to glorify our Lord and Savior in heaven. So, so not wanting rewards is not understanding what they're about. It's in effect saying, I want nothing to lay at Christ's feet. I don't want to bring him honor and glory in worship. I'd rather just show up at the judgment seat empty-handed. You see, hearing our master say, well done, will not simply be for our pleasure, but his, but his. Again, bear in mind that rewards are given for faithfully living out our calling in Christ, uh, which of course centers on this making a discipleship a priority in our life. Uh, and listen, <laughs> you're already running the race Paul talks about. So am I when it comes to rewards. It's just a matter of how we are running that race. You know, in Greece, you had to be a citizen in order to compete in the games. And so nearly all the citizens, of course, <clears throat> not all of them took part of the games. In fact, most of them didn't. Because even if you became eligible, then you had to give proof of your citizenship. Well, likewise, you have to be a citizen of heaven in order to qualify for the race that Paul talks about here. He speaks about to the Corinthians. But there is a big difference in that all citizens of heaven are enrolled in this race. It's not optional. There's no other events being offered during this time frame. You, you don't run this race to get to heaven. You run this race in order to receive the prize that Paul talks about, the reward connected to one's faithfulness. And that race began the day you accepted Christ as your Savior. But this is one race in which everyone has the potential of winning because we're not competing against others, but with ourselves. You're, you're not counting your rewards because there's really no way to do that before the Lord awards them. So you can't keep tally. You can't compare yourself to others because each one of our situations is different. Each one of the context of our lives and gifts and motivations is different. So it's not a contest. It's about faithfully living for the Lord. Just faithfully live for the Lord. Let him sort it out. Because we're going to be judged individually by God, including our methods and our motives and all the things that we can't see here. So to be determined, again, is what we did with what God has given us. How did we build up the kingdom? How did we build up his body, the church? We all have our own personal finish line. We all have our own personal coach. We all have our own personal final judgment before him. And our rewards will not be handed out by any human judge, and that is a good thing, is it not? But by the Lord, the righteous judge. You know, human judges and umpires, uh, even in these sporting events we watch, they make such bad calls, don't they? I mean, every time A&M plays TU, every time A&M plays Alabama, Bad calls, bad calls. <laughs> but you see, we see even more serious true justice thwarted here in the dot, in our court systems, et cetera. But Christ is the perfectly righteous judge. He's not gonna make any mistakes. He's not gonna commit any injustice. Finally, we're going to have perfect justice meted out. So like Paul, now, <clears throat> If you and I want to end our lives with any consistency as a disciple of Christ, we have to relate our lives today to the anticipation with our future with him in eternity, in heaven. 
We do want to finish the course, as, as, as the Apostle Paul says, finish the race, which, which again implies that we know in which direction we need to be running. There's nothing worse for a runner than to make a, a wrong turn during a marathon so that he misses the, misses the finish line. And there's hardly much worse for the believer than to waste the bulk of our time on things that really have no eternal significance. To do so means that we can be disqualified. We can lose rewards as a result of that. Uh, they can be taken from us. Scripture says that if we can seek rewards from men, then we forfeit them from God. The Apostle John says, watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Again, simply a call for faithfulness. Don't go sideways. Don't miss the turn. Do you know what it means to be living as a believer in the current set of circumstances in which you find yourself? Do you, do you keep your eyes on that finish line, that last day that's coming, on the course that's ahead of us? I hope so. Because I don't want to find myself running the wrong way. I don't want to find myself, like C.S. Lewis said, living like an ignorant child who, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because I cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. I don't want to be too easily pleased, enticed away by the world from, from engaging in those things that really matter. Donald Barnhouse says this. He says, let us live then in light of eternity. If we do not, we are weighting the scales against our eternal welfare. In short, I don't want to find myself living for the dot instead of the line of eternity. I want to make sure that while I am living in the dot, I am living for the line. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be one of your children. What a privilege it is to worship you, to serve you. Lord, out of our love for you, our deep gratitude and heart. Lord, life is so distracting, can be so derailing our priorities, so entangling our sins at times that we lose sight of the line before us. Uh, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, through the bond that we have with one another, through your word, may you keep us focused, focused on that line of eternity as we live out faithfully our lives for you and your glory here in the dot. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.